The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this week's episode, we consider how the Bluebell decision applies to cyber claims against the Board of Directors. We take a deep dive into the Herbalife FCPA enforcement action. We consider the intersection of anti-human trafficking and anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance. We asked, does the DOJ have to turn over SEC investigative material in a criminal FCPA trial? What's the intersection of compliance and internal audit? The Department of Justice charges former Uber CISO for lying about a data breach. Has COVID-19 changed the relationship between senior management and the board? These stories, podcasts, and upcoming webinars all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 222, not room 222, but episode 222, for the week ending September 18, 2020, the Trees Gone Bad edition. Jay, as Donald Trump blames the California and Oregon forest fires on trees gone bad, are you still braving the surge in COVID by staying safe? We are indeed. Safe behind our trees. Well, when trees go bad, that means they will self-immolate and cause forest fires. So for those of you who wondered what causes forest fires, we now know. So we had a lot going on this week, Jay, uh, and we started with an article that I found incredibly interesting. Some um, uh, three authors, one from McDermott, Will, and Emory, a couple of professors, one from USC and one from Minnesota State, wrote an article about um, the Bluebell Board of Directors' decision around Caremark, they looked at it, though, Jay, from uh, cybersecurity claims, and they laid out a process by which a plaintiff's lawyer could bring a cybersecurity claim against a board if there's a breach. Recognizing this was cyber, nevertheless, I found it incredibly useful for the compliance practitioner because it lays out what a board needs to do to avoid care mark liability um, under uh, a bluebell type claim, uh, but also really gives some, I think, excellent pointers as to what a um, board needs to do. So 
of course, we cited to the article. Uh, kudos to the authors. I thought it was incredibly well done. Yeah. And for those who have uh, you know struggled with what should I tell the board their role is, I think if you use this article and think about it not from the cybersecurity perspective, but from the compliance perspective, you'll really be able to educate your boards quite well. So next up, Tom, uh, we've got a couple articles about Volkswagen uh, closing out its monitorship. One comes to us from Jack Ewing in the New York Times, and then another one from our good friend Menke Sun at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Volkswagen AG has wrapped up a three-year suspension program under a U.S.-appointed independent monitor in the wake of its emissions scandal, resulting in a more transparent company, top executives have said. But the end of the monitorship is not the end of the journey. The company is committed to the continuous improvement of its organization and culture, and so are all the board and management colleagues. The German carmaker has worked to strengthen its risk-based compliance program and has focused on training to improve workplace culture as it sought to meet obligations under a plea agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice. The deal with the Justice Department was related to the company's 2017 diesel admission settlement. In that, Volkswagen admitted in 2015 to have rigged some 11 million of its diesel vehicles worldwide with software that allowed them to dodge government emission standards. Volkswagen said that since 2017, it has updated and strengthened its structures and systems and technical development, governance, risk management, compliance, and legal functions, among other divisions. These efforts included appointing dedicated compliance officers for individual business sections, such as marketing and sales. The compliance process is structured now in alignment with business activities. The company also set up information channels through which employees who need advice regarding compliance, human resources, and legal issues can get guidance quickly. The company has trained employees on its code of conduct and provides anti-corruption training to those who have contact with government officials. The Justice Department had appointed Larry D. Thompson, a former U.S. Deputy Attorney General, as Volkswagen's Independence Compliance Monitor. Mr. Thompson used his third and final, issued his third and final audit report this June, according to the company. The monitoring covered the company's subsidiaries and affiliates, excluding Porsche AG and Porsche Cars North America. Volkswagen AG has become a different company and a better company, Mr. Thompson said. Volkswagen can be proud of the progress it has made. It has required continued, continued vigilance, but the structures and processes in place and the commitments at all levels of the company, along with the oversight of the supervisory board, can make Volkswagen a long-term and sustainable ethics, integrity, and compliance success. So, uh, you know, we we say often that companies who go through these experiences have the best program that they can buy, and they're cutting edge. And what we hope for Volkswagen is they don't follow the path of Wells Fargo onto recidivism. I took a deep dive into herbal life this week. And uh, I really, uh, uh, I don't want to kind of belabor uh, the facts of the case too much because we went into that detail last week with a great series Mike Volkoff had. But there's some of the highlights that I wanted to, to put forward. Number one, um, I don't think the board of directors was in on the bribery scheme, but uh, the board was either incredibly inane, incredibly inept, or incredibly naive. Uh, at least two board members ask about 
four years worth of $7.6 million in GTE reimbursement out of the China business unit, to which the head of internal audit replied, these findings are typical of those found in similar audits, and they're, quote, within tolerance, end quote. Um, That's either an outright lie or ineptitude by the head of internal audit. So, uh, and let me just say, there's never been an internal audit in the history of the world ever where $7.6 million in questionable GTE spend was typical or or within tolerance. So um, either the board got lied to or, or they didn't follow up. But it really points to the need that the board has to oversee and the board can't simply take senior management's word. Uh, Ronnie Reagan was right in one respect beyond just say no, and that was trust but verify. And unfortunately, that's what the board of directors has to do as well. So um, that's sort of point one. Point two is, and and we're going to continue our cultural references here because uh, HBO just had the great series, The Watchmen. And uh, one of the questions is, who watches The Watchers? Well, who watched The Watchers in this case? Who oversaw internal controls? Who oversaw those who could uh, override internal controls? They actually had an internal control in place, which limited a gift, meal, or entertainment to one Chinese official to up to six times a year. Um, the Chinese business unit recognized that the they would have to get approval for anything over six times per year, and the U.S. executive in charge just said, oh, just misrepresent the forms, put false names on there, and they'll go straight through. Well, that really brings up another cultural reference that is incredibly important for the um, compliance profession, Jay, and that's, of course, the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg. Um, everyone in America hopefully remembers reading The Great Gatsby in high school, and the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg are on the way to from Long Island to New York City, and you have to have a second set of eyes to validate any process. Um, even if an entire organization's corrupt, there's going to be one person who can see this, this override and, and uh, take care of it. So you've got to have a second set of eyes. You want to be a little more current in your cultural references, check out the Watchmen. Um, throughout this podcast, or rather, I did a four-part blog post series on this, Jay, and I will have to say I crowed more about defense counsel in this case than probably I have in any other blog post series. So I'm going to crow about him now, and that's Pat Stokes. Pat Stokes, um, former DOJ or former head of the SCPA unit, now at Gibson Dunn. And I cannot say enough about what Pat and his team at Gibson Dunn did in this case. They, I don't know when they came in. I don't know if they came in after a subpoena was issued, but they got the attention of senior management. They got things turned around. They did an extensive uh, investigation. They had extraordinary cooperation between themselves and the DOJ and SEC and engaged in extensive remediation during the pendency of the investigation. They somehow got uh, a no monitor required, and I know you talked about that issue in our last podcast, but the more I read and thought about it, um, they just did a superior job. One thing I would have liked to have seen is more analysis from the Department of Justice in its DPA as to why a monitor was not required because those factors are somewhat laid out, not somewhat, they're laid out in the Minchkowski memo, but it's really not laid out in the DPA. So big tip of the hat to Pat Stokes and his team. Great job. 
And then finally, what does this mean for FCPA enforcement and specifically penalties going forward? Jay, there's been a, a fair amount of commentary that the Trump administration has really taken the foot off the gas and we're at a downside of FCPA enforcement. And I really don't think that's it. Starting really with 2016, the pilot program, we saw the DOJ move towards greater incentives for companies to self-disclose and cooperate. Uh, We did not have self-disclosure here. Uh, It's unclear why or how uh, the SEC found out about Herbalife or contacted them. Nevertheless, um, once contact was made and Pat Stokes and his team came on board to represent uh, Herbalife, uh, they did engage in all of the other incentivized conduct that the DOJ and SEC talk about, and that's extensive remediation, ex- extraordinarily invest- extraordinary investigation, and extraordinary cooperation. If you engage in those, and if you have, even with very, very bad conduct, which I would say opine probably went up to the C-suite, although we don't have that laid out in the DPA or cease and desist order, um, Herbalife still got a 25% discount off the uh, bottom range of the sentencing guidelines. So um, I, I think really what, Jay, this case tells me is the DOJ really wants to put, really wanted to put incentives in place, and they've done so. And that if you find a FCPA violation, you have the opportunity to self-disclose to get a complete declination. If you're like um, Herbalife, um, even without self-disclosure, you still can get a pretty good uh, deal out of it. So uh, I think the DOJ is really incentivizing companies to work with them with or without self-disclosure. And it's going to be interesting to see. We've had an incredible year in FCPA enforcement. It's going to be interesting to see what happens the rest of the year, Jay. Uh, Next up is the first of two from the FCPA blog. This comes to us from Vanessa Hans. New due diligence laws force companies to rethink human rights and anti-corruption compliance. Earlier this month, business at OECD and the International Organization of Employers published a new guide entitled Connecting the Anti-Corruption and Human Rights Agenda, a guide for business employers organizations. This guide comes at a time when several jurisdictions will be introducing new regulations on human rights due diligence, such as Switzerland and the European Union. France recently implemented a corporate duty of vigilance law in 2017, and the Netherlands has a new child labor law due. This changing landscape is putting spotlight on human rights compliance and causing companies to rethink their compliance and sustainability functions. Breaking down silos and reducing duplications. The main takeaway from the guide is that cooperative approaches to human rights and anti-corruption compliance have to replace existing silos between compliance legal and sustainability corporate social responsibility functions. Due diligence processes are time-consuming, especially since most businesses interact with numerous third parties. Looking at due diligence with a corruption and human rights lens requires a logical and coordinated approach. Beyond understanding the data which arises from anti-corruption and human rights compliance, pushing the human rights and the anti-corruption agenda forward in any business requires a strong corporate culture focusing on integrity. Collective action is a solution. Human rights and anti-corruption compliance synergies can be explored through a company's engagement and multi-stakeholder cooperation and collective action initiatives. 
Collective Action offers a framework for companies to develop sector-specific best practices through constructive exchanges with peer companies. The Basel Institute on Governance is convening and facilitating a series of short private sector roundtables underneath Chatham House rules. These offer an opportunity to discuss together with other companies the opportunities, risks, and methodologies around human rights and compliance risks related to due diligence and other related issues. We link to this in the show notes and hope you'll check it out. Uh, Jay, next up, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, uh, go, goes legal on us. Uh, Matt doesn't write about legal issues too often, but it's always fun when he does. And he came across a really interesting case. You'll, of course, recall the Cognizant Technologies FCPA enforcement action, where we had alleged C-suite involvement uh, in the in the face in the, in the form of the CEO and general counsel. Um, they are both under individual indictment for their actions and are fighting this tooth and nail. And this fight revolves around whether they should have access to the SEC's investigative materials around um, the cognizant technology case. So the Department of Justice brought criminal action against uh, these two individuals. Uh, the SEC did not. The SEC did not bring civil action. But what the um, two individuals, Colburn and Schwartz, claim is that under a test called the Risha test, the uh, Department of Justice is under constructive control of uh, the SEC materials. That is constructive control are under three factors. When a party with knowledge of the information is acting on the government's behalf or under its control, to the extent of which the government uh, agencies are a part of a team or participating in a joint investigation or sharing resources, and whether the entity charged with constructive possession has ready access. And what the court found that he needed, the court needed additional findings on these points. So there's going to be a hearing on this. I have to admit, this is a this is a complete geekness for lawyers, and and I really loved reading this case. But uh, it obviously has not come up in the FCPA world before because we have so few FCPA criminal charges. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not the Department of Justice has to give up SEC documents. Uh, of course, this is just really one big fishing expedition by the defendant's lawyers, but maybe there's something in there that they can use. So uh, interesting article from the coolest guy in compliance. Uh, so next up, we have uh, another article from one of the friends of the podcast, Mike Volkov, writing in his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. We take a look at the importance of internal audit and compliance partnership. In wake of the International Institute of Auditors' recent proclamation of a revised and controversial three lines defense model, Mike thought it would be helpful to underscore the importance of the IA of the internal audit and compliance functions to effective internal controls, including ethics and compliance programs. In most companies, internal audit and compliance work together effectively to leverage each other's resources and overall efficiencies. IA conducts an annual risk assessment to identify and risk rank financial activities to develop a multi-year audit plan for review by the audit committee. This risk assessment is also helpful for compliance purposes as well. It's a valuable source of risk information that can be incorporated by compliance into regular risk review and updated procedures. 
Aside from the basic function, Internal Audit conducts relevant site visits and audits, sometimes with compliance staff who might conduct a compliance review contemporaneously. Most internal audit and compliance staff coordinate their activities, priorities, and projects. An empowered internal audit function naturally elevates the importance of compliance. In some situations, Mike's observed that internal audit and compliance leaders may jointly present issues to the audit committee of the full board of directors. Companies which need to reach out to internal, uh, rather, compliance needs to reach out to internal internal audit, find issues of mutual importance, and leverage each other's resources to identify win-win situations. Compliance should seek internal audits, ideas, and assistance for focusing compliance audits on high-risk activities and in high-risk countries. Compliance internal audit overlap in mutual interest in a variety of subject areas, such as financial authorization and approval thresholds, onboarding, onboarding and contract invoice payment processes, contract pricings, discounts and rebates, gifts, meals and entertainment, charitable donations, tender processes and bidding procedures, sponsorships, and local content and set-aside policies and procedures. As stewards of these important functions, internal audit and compliance need to work together, and a company that does not encourage or ensure such a partnership is likely to suffer a significant control weakness. Jay, our second article from the FCPA blog is from Dick Casson, and Dick took a look at the definition of who is a PEP, or politically exposed person. And it turns out there is no single definition. Uh, FinCEN has said it's commonly refers to a foreign individual who serve in a prominent public role, foreign individuals who have or have been entrusted with prominent public function, as well as their immediately family members and close associates. The Bank Secrecy Act does not define it at all, only refers to corrupt foreign officials. In Europe, uh, they add this language to the definition in order to provide for a coherent application of the concept of PEPs when determining the group of persons covered is essential to take into consideration the social, political, and economic differences of the country's concern. The Financial Action Task Force says foreign PEPs are individuals who are or have been entrusted with prominent public functions by a foreign company, for example, heads of state or government, senior politicians, senior government officials, judicial or military officials, senior executives of state-owned corporations, and important political party officials. Um, Can these uh, definitions be reconciled? Not really. Uh, But Dick says that is actually a good thing because you want to have um, a definition which is flexible enough and provides that companies can actually, or banks uh, as well, can uh, have more uh, 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 broader definitions extend to a broader group. So, for example, uh, tribal members or uh, other family, uh, other types of governance structures that exist outside the United States. Please note that does not include American Indian tribes. Um, And he ends with, I think, the real reason why uh, the definition should be somewhat vague. He said, if there was an authoritative body to expressly eliminate certain categories of persons from the definitions of PEPs, uh, specifically circus clowns, we all know what would happen. Suddenly the world would be crowded with circus clowns who just happen to have some coincidental connection to this or that kleptocrat. 
So a really interesting article from uh, Dick Casson, and it really shows how with a well-thought-out definition, you can craft your own definition, which uh, I think a regulator will uh, take heed of. Great. We're up to our article number eight, taking a look at something from Corporate Compliance Insights. And uh, they're asking, how has COVID-19 changed the relationship between board and management? As the pandemic continues to take its toll on the economy and on the wider world, corporations have been forced to change the day-to-day at all levels. This crisis has particularly altered the longstanding relationship between boards and senior management. Dottie Scheinlinger and Kira Ciccarelli from the Diligent Institute detailed this shift and how it might continue to change going forward. Despite new renewed gains in the stock markets, the pandemic's long-term impact on the global economy remains unclear, and many businesses and industries are struggling to keep up. To stay afloat, companies have been forced to adapt. In particular, the relationship between corporate boards and their management teams has evolved considerably. In March 2020, the Diligent Institute published uh, its Ask a Director series focused on ways that corporate directors were responding to the early days of the pandemic. Since that publication, a few new trends have emerged around the ways that boards are adapting to the present reality and the ongoing climate of uncertainty. The line between governance and management remains blurred. During the initial phase of crisis management, it quickly became clear that the boards needed to take a more hands-on approach to governance to ensure company survival. As the pandemic and its many related economic effects continued, what seemed to be a short-term change in their role has become a more consistent pattern over time. As directors tend to have previous C-suite experience in wider external networks, companies are relying on their unique backgrounds and skill to help them address the gaps in the crisis. Meanwhile, directors are also providing support to management with a stamp of approval on some senior management decisions that normally would go straight to the board level. Management decisions regarding company operations in the time of COVID-19 can mean quite literally life and death. The pandemic has created a shift in corporate communications. Corporate communications have changed drastically during the pandemic with the goal of creating better alignment. Now more than ever, shareholders, investors, and the general public are holding corporations accountable for crisis response. This extends to how management teams and the board are communicating. In an environment where a company's decision could mean jeopardizing the health and safety of the workforce or lead to the organization's financial ruin. Many directors report increased knowledge of daily operations compared to the time before the pandemic. This is largely due to the nature of the pandemic itself. And in addition to the increased volume of information, communication between management and the board has increased dramatically. Directors seek a new balance between doing due diligence and overstepping. Boards have a duty in this climate to ensure that management is not overwhelmed by information demands. Though directors should seek relevant information for oversight, especially in a crisis, they must also recognize the importance of limiting information seeking to time-sensitive and pertinent inquiries. Before COVID-19, directors generally retain, refrain from engaging in day-to-day operations, as doing so can create inefficiencies and, at best, an a company-wide crisis is at worst. Once the pandemic subsides, how can communication shift back to normal, and what will that shift look like? 
So the authors leave us with four questions for directors and executives about corporate governance's new normal. How will the boards and management decide when it's time to transition back to the original roles and what metrics will you use to determine when this should occur? What aspects of the relationship between boards and management should remain changed and which should return to, quote, normal, unquote? How effective have increased communications between board and management been for your company during the crisis? And is this communication level feasible moving forward? And finally, is management becoming overwhelmed with information requests as your company moves past an initial crisis management? All very interesting thoughts. And uh, again, we link to it in the show notes. Tom, here's the part of the podcast where we talk about some of your other podcast properties on the web. What are we looking at this week? So, Jay, this week on the Compliance Life, uh, well, once again, for the month of September, I'm joined by Deanna Wonkwo. And this week, we take a look at the skills she needed when she sat in the CCO chair. Last week, we talked about how she got to the CCO chair. Over on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, this month, we're focusing on internal controls. That podcast is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, so shout out to AMI. We looked at uh, internal controls for third parties on Monday. On Tuesday, internal controls for GTE. On Wednesday, the Board of Director Oversight as an internal control. Thursday, your Code of Conduct as an internal control. And on Friday, what the COSO framework, uh, internal controls framework is. So check out uh, this week's offerings on um, internal controls. Uh, Jay and I both want you to join us for the Converge 2020 uh, upcoming virtual conference, which will be held October 7th and 8th. It's got a great lineup, um, and uh, the event is free. If you're looking for some CLE, this will be the place for you because you can't beat the price. We have an upcoming webinar from K2 Intelligence Finn, Robin Henry, on how investigators can use social media and fraud investigations. Registration and information are linked in the show notes. And Finally, myself, uh, Stephen Martin, a partner at Stone Turn, and Charlie Volker, from Volker a legal compliance solutions at Skillsoft, um, are, we're three of us are putting on a webinar on evolving your compliance program uh, under the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. It's next Wednesday from 12 to 1 uh, uh, Eastern time. It's going to be really interesting. I had some great insights from uh, podcasts with these two guys, and we hope to share those for you in the webinar. Great. So uh, if anyone has any comments, criticisms, or things you'd like to address, Tom can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I can be reached as the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, who's not only the compliance evangelist, but also the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in episode uh, this week in FCPA, episode 222, not the classroom as Tom referred to, for the week ending September 18th, 2020, the Tree's Gone Bad edition. Uh, we hope that you and your loved ones are safe and secure and healthy. And for those of you celebrating the new year, we wish you a sweet Rosh Hashanah. And we'll talk to you next week on This Week in FCPA. Fox at tfoxlaw.com. We also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message. If you'd 
like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>